0: good morning my name is ian power i'm here with steve Seaborn, the little contractor today on the home discovery show barbecue be clean and mid-century west coast architecture that's what's coming up right now i want to talk about something that came up uh, the other day we were talking about the differences between osb and plywood particularly as it applies to new home construction so Mr. Little Contractor, could you give us a 101 on what the differences are between the two pieces of
1: wood? What, well, OSB is Orientated Strand Board. It's essentially a bunch of wood chips bonded together with a resin uh, resin glue under pressure, under heat and pressure, to create panel products as plywood. They're, they're considered a little bit more green because they use smaller diameter trees, different kind of trees, so they're considered renewable it's made from from scraps rather than having to get the old growth trees and spun to be able to create the veneers there's a, there's a, they're a little heavier than than plywood by the same thickness and the same size of sheet so there's some more stress on the house itself as far as weight consideration and installing it the nails, fasteners, screws, uh, staples will hold better into plywood. There is some there is some argument that the uh, uh, the amount of swelling that will occur when there's some water infiltration that goes into the OSB will will mushroom up as we call it, swell up a little bit more. The prices seem to be a little bit more for the OSB, uh, it, but it really depends on the builders as to how much they want to invest on the house and the project uh, and uh, what they use, what's available. What's your choice? Oh, I'm still old school plywood. I got an email from Rob who was
0: asking about OSB versus plywood and uh, noted that many builders that are using the OSB and or plywood for that matter will, will put it up in the middle of a rainstorm and let it just soak for weeks upon
1: weeks and, and then they'll, they'll wrap it up in plastic. Right, that is that is a challenge. I mean, uh, building here on the West Coast, we do have a large rainy season. And so the days of building a house and putting the roof on it and letting it set for six months to dry out is, uh, is not anymore. So now it's a matter of uh, framing the house, getting the outside envelope sealed up and letting it dry out from the inside. So hopefully that... Having the house physically exposed to rain will cause some damage, but it's uh, apparently it's considered negligible. Uh, engineering products are now available for beams and structures. There's gap spaces. There's rain screens. So there is um, there is that that happens, but it's still it's still a concern. The OSB, then,
0: would be used anywhere that you would normally use plywood? Correct, and even the floors. Uh, uh, that was my next question. You, right. you oh, anticipated.
1: Yeah, sure, uh, and it's, it's thicker. It's tongue and groove as well, again, still glued down, and even floor joists. You can see them on, we call them, uh, truss joists. They're, they're essentially a two-by-two two with a web, a center part of OSB. So uh, one person could carry a 20-foot-long floor joist and stick it into place. Mm-hmm.
0: Another email from Kelly uh, talking about uh, people being pressured to buy homes with no subjects and the big risk of of doing that when uh, you buy a home without a home inspection. Uh, Talking about, uh, uh, asking the question rather, is there something that the government can do to perhaps make home inspections mandatory with a home purchase? I just, I really don't see that happening. I don't see that happening anytime quickly. I don't think the way uh, the home inspection system works right now, uh, is is going to see its way to go to that extra layer. Might be a good idea, but it would certainly slow the process down. In my view, the government doesn't seem interested in slowing the process down all that much, at least not in any kind of significant way. Uh, they'd like to see at least Kelly in, in her email. Uh, I'm assuming it's a it's a Kelly female, could be a male, I suppose. But nonetheless, Kelly says that um, perhaps uh, they could have a period of time. Well, that that's the whole point. They don't want... Uh, these people that are removing their subjects, the seller is looking for a bidding war. They're not going to give you le- weeks, let alone hours, right. to have that kind of a subject. But it's a good question. Uh, and and finally, do you think that it's a major public concern? Uh, who would be responsible for making it legally mandatory? I don't know. The the, pu- the public just, just seems to go along with the way things are, and, and mm-hmm. so be it. We'll have a little bit more On home inspections, just after 11 o'clock this morning on Vancouver Consumer. So, if you're interested in home inspections and what to do when that subject is removed, uh, you want to be listening, uh, as I say, just after 11 o'clock for Vancouver Consumer. Coming up after our break, we're going to talk about barbecue be clean. What is that? Find out when we come back on the Home Discovery Show. From News Talk 980 CKNW. My name is Ian Power. I'm here with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. Our next guest has come up with what just might be one of the greatest ideas ever. Especially in this part of the world. Isn't the key to any business to recognize a market that is underserved or not served at all? I want you to meet Jo Carroll. She's the owner of Barbecue Be Clean, where she has fully trained staff dispatched to your home to steam clean using only eco-friendly products your barbecue and why not there's plenty of obvious reasons to want to have and use a clean barbecue not to mention that a barbecue can now cost the same as a small sports car good morning joe nice to have you with us
2: hi and nice to speak to you
0: what makes your steam cleaning system better than let's say my 150 dollars electric power washer
2: oh well um Our steam cleaner heats to um, 150 degrees C, so it completely sanitises, number one, completely sanitises the barbecue as we're cleaning it. Um, So you often get kind of rodents, rats and mice nesting over the winter, especially in a barbecue. Um, So your power washer wouldn't sanitise, it would, you know, clean, but it would make an awful mess as well. Um, Our steam cleaner uh, pushes steam out for a really small hole, which is important because if it was a larger hole, it would lose its heat mm. really quickly. And a small hole will keep that heat, which we need, because basically we're kind of melting, you know, completely burnt-on debris from years of, of use. <laughs> um, and because it's only through a little hole, it doesn't it doesn't spray everywhere at all. There is no mess. So we cover the area with uh, quadruple tarp. Um, But, you know, it isn't like a pressure washer. It doesn't
0: just spray everywhere. Yeah, well, you're right about the pressure washer spraying everywhere. And the most frustrating thing about a a power washer, which is a little bit aside from what we're talking about here, is that if you've ever done your driveway, why is it that the, the, the area where you start always looks the best because by the time you get uh, about two or three inches into the project, you are pretty much given up anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, you talk about eco-friendly cleaning products, and, mm. and you're quite emphatic about that. Uh, I take it that not all equal or as advertised eco-friendly products are created equal.
2: No, because if you go to um, various hardware stores or wherever you, you might buy, uh, different cleaners. So often we go to clients' houses that use um, like kitchen appliance cleaners uh, to clean the barbecue, um, and they think that that, that product's okay. But um, if you actually turn some of the uh, products round, uh, you'll see, you know, either the toxic symbol or the corrosive symbol. Um, and we sometimes go to barbecues where there are actual holes in the burners, particularly the burners. Uh, rusty grills and it's you know it, it could be attributed to, to these products that they're not they're not correct for the job that they're trying to do so I also particularly wouldn't like to cook where something of a toxic nature has been on that cooking appliance I just you know that's just my thing so our products are, well steam obviously it's steam it's nothing toxic in steam and then we also buy um, a locally made organic uh, cleaning products from the North Shore um, and we use that and we don't use any chemicals whatsoever on the inside of that barbecue. So
0: yeah. It's nice and clean and and it's uh, pretty much uh, uh, about as clean as you're going to get it from brand new even. Uh, So how often should uh, a barbecue be cleaned in your estimation? Some people like to have uh, a little, I mean, I've heard this argument so many times and I'm not sure which way Uh, what I believe that that you need a seasoned grill you need to leave you know if you've been cooking steaks on the grill uh, you know let that steak residue just sit there you know it's okay for you know for the season uh, or or does it need to be cleaned after every use
2: no no barbecue companies um, often advise that you burn off um, the you know the, the most of the residue after each time you use it um, and you've still got a the season in there, but, it, but you know most of that uh, debris is, is burnt off. And um, I, I think if you if you use your barbecue maybe every day uh, for a family of four or five, then maybe maybe you should be having it done every six months to a year. Um, a year, it, we do ours every year. Um, you know that's what most people do. Um, and then if you did it at the end of the season or at the beginning of the season, then you you put in that completely clean barbecue away aren't you um so often if people don't have it cleaned at the end of the season when they open it up next spring it will be completely moldy Mm. um which is is you know then very bad for your health um and if you're going to be cleaning that we we use proper masks because you shouldn't be inhaling mold spores um so yeah i I understand about the seasoning but um if you just had it done every year from new then that barbecue will come up like new every year, whereas we're generally going to people's barbecues who are 2, 3, 10, 15 years old. <laughs> so then, you know, it's never... It's going to be clean. It's going to... That, you know, everything that's going to come off with steam at 150 degrees C is going, is, will be off, but we're never going to get it like new because it's been left too long, whereas, you know, if you're spending $10,000 on a, on a top-of-the-range barbecue and you have it done every year, it would look like new... Which is great because then you know the integrity of the burners it remains. The heat keeps even. You know your cooking's fantastic, and there's no build-up of grease.
0: You mean all the important things and the reason why you have a barbecue? How how long do you think a, a, a good, a reasonably a decent barbecue should last?
2: Oh. Years and years and years, if you maintain it correctly. You know, we we do some barbecues that are 20 years old. Yeah. Uh, it depends on you make. And, you know, I can't on radio say make some barbecues, which, you know. Uh, but, yeah, if you invest in a good barbecue, you know, it properly invests, not, not like a couple of dollars, then that mm-hmm. barbecue, if if you maintain it, it, should last a long, long, long time.
0: Yeah. But you don't do portables, do you?
2: No, because um, no, we don't. Because we have a minimum charge of two hours' work for two hundred dollars, and then it drops to thirty dollars every half an hour. Mm. Now, most portables actually take longer than you might think. They can take one and a half to two hours. Oh. Um, yeah, it's because they're, they're so small that it's difficult for us to get tools and hands and equipment into into the actual barbecue to get it clean, and they're also not made of uh, the same great stainless steel as a top top of the range barbecue would be so they generally don't come up as well either um and we just don't find that it's cost effective for somebody to to be paying us to do that and they're not throwaway barbecues at all but but they're not ones that are going to last for 10 15 20 years
0: you talk about getting your hands in there how how much uh, of the work that you do is actual hand scrubbing and how much of it is uh, the steam cleaning
2: um probably half and half really we you couldn't I couldn't effectively do it with just scrubbing. You need the steam to to melt. Sure. Um, basically, you, you you know you'd be scrubbing the the top surface, but you wouldn't be getting down to 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 the metal with just scrubbing. So yeah, we, we I don't think we could do it without the the machine.
0: Barbecue be clean is the name of your business, but in fact you have a whole range of items that, that you can make sparkle just like new, don't you?
2: Yeah, well, we do, we do, yes, our main business is barbecues, uh, but we do do uh, kitchen ovens and stovetops and quite a lot of extractor hoods as well um, because, the, you know, things are too greasy like an extractor hood, that the steam just melts away. So, so you know, that, that's quite a quick and, and relatively easy job. Um, a barbecue is a bit harder, which is why it takes longer.
0: Mm-hmm. Imagine uh, that uh, your service would be very effective in a commercial kitchen.
2: Um, yeah, we've toyed with that idea. We've not gone down that route yet, but, um, I don't know, Ian. I think sometimes you should stick to what you do really well and, and just keep it small. I don't know. We'll, we're, we're, we're on the fence of that one.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Now cooking appliances and barbecues in general, uh, must be considered when we talk about potential fire hazards because I imagine you would see this all the time where you you come across equipment that has that potential to become a fire hazard is, is that the case and if so what do you do about that
2: so we go to a fair few barbecues that have been um have had a fire or a flare-up and they're covered with the fire extinguisher solution um, and there has actually been, you know, significant house fires because the barbecues are catching fire and, you know, being right against the the, the wood of, of, a, of a house. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's mainly because people have let it build up. So the grease, you know, the grease trail will be overflowing with grease. The burners will be full of grease and debris. And, and the, yeah, there is often flare up. So, again, that, that's another thing to, to push, you know, annually or six monthly proper professional cleans for a barbecue so everything is, is totally removed mm-hmm. um
0: yeah you talk about uh, another good reason to maintain your barbecue apart from just getting more life out of it more use getting more value for your dollar if you're on the north shore for example or if you're in coquitlam or any other area that attracts bears bears will be attracted to your dirty barbecue
2: they will yes they will especially if it's been left and that grease has built up so yes if you um if you look at the uh, north shore black bear society um, they recommend that you burn off each time you've cooked for 10 minutes um that excess um debris food food particles on your grills and also to empty the grease tray every time now we i don't think we've ever gone to a barbecue where they the grease tray isn't isn't full or, or mm-hmm. overflowing. We've certainly never done one where it's been emptied every time. So I think you know you can only expect people to do what what is realistic. Um, and if you know if they had it cleaned once a year, then at least that grease wouldn't wouldn't be so built up.
0: Is this a fair statement that? A lot of people like to barbecue, uh, apart from the flavor that you would get off of a barbecue, that they like to barbecue because they see it as a, an easy and convenient way to cook without the mess. Because, let's be honest, it, it seems to me at least that a lot of people that cook on the barbecue just leave it. After they're done, they walk away.
2: Yeah, that is true. Um, yes, and you know that's then why they call us in at the end of the year to um to you know pick up the pieces of that season's mess i guess um yeah i i think people like to barbecue i think everybody likes being outdoors when the weather's nice uh, and it's also a really healthy way of cooking your food whether that be meat or fish or vegetables it's you know it's a it's it's healthy it's sure. uh, you know not in a frying pan with a load of fat
0: a lot of your clients uh are barbecuing 12 months a year
2: yes yes they are uh, a lot of our clients do that especially um you know, with outdoor kitchens and um, and decks with lovely views, like we get on the North Shore and um, in other areas of DC.
0: So yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. Now I I won't get into specifics, but you've got some excellent testimonials online on your website, BarbecueBeClean dot com. Have a look at testimonials there if you're interested in seeing that. I, I I can't let you go until I ask you how your dogs are doing. <laughs>
2: Thank you. One's just appeared uh, and then walked out again. Uh, they're fine, thank you, Ian. The, uh, Mr. Finlay is uh, getting a bit old now, he's 12 years old. <laughs> Uh, Daisy's upstairs with my daughter because she'd bark and you wouldn't be able to hear me. Uh, she's five and Alfie's four, so Daisy's actually five tomorrow. It's a birthday tomorrow. Thank you, congratulations!
0: (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure. I know that uh, your husband is busy, he travels a lot. Uh, you've got your children that are helping with the business. I just wanted to very briefly go over this because I think you've got a fascinating story. You, in fact, ran a dog behavior business, you're a former. ER nurse practitioner from the UK and at one time a coroner for the BC Coroner Service and the, the last six months apparently it says right here on this piece of paper that you were on the International Space Station.
2: <laughs>
0: That's not true is it?
2: Uh, well, I couldn't possibly comment.
0: Joe Carroll from Barbecue Be Clean. Check it out. Thank you Joe. We'll talk to you again later in the season.
2: Thank
0: you Ian. We're going to go and take a look at mid-century west coast architecture on the home discovery show in a moment on news talk 980 cknw good morning i'm ian power here with steve seaborne the little contractor be sure to follow along with the home discovery show page on facebook mid-century west coast residential architecture stock has been dwindling in the last 10 to 20 years but is increasingly more popular as many owners are looking to modernize these vancouver specials and other familiar vancouver housing styles On Saturday, April 16th, the Vancouver Heritage Foundation presents the 8th Vancouver Special House Tour. And to tell us what to expect this year, and a 1966 duplex homeowner who transformed this truly unique property into something really special, we'll begin with Judith Mosley, the Executive Director of the Vancouver Heritage Foundation. Thanks for being with us on the Home Discovery Show, Judith.
3: Hello, Ian. Thank you for having me. It's
0: always good to talk to you. What makes this era of the 1950s and on houses, including Vancouver Specials, so special?
3: Well, it's actually, it's a very interesting time in the city's history and development. So these different sort of common house styles, the Vancouver Special, of course, is one that's now pretty well known as uh, there's so many of them across the city. But these kind of house styles are really part of the architectural history of Vancouver. Uh, They've been around now for uh, many of them for 50 years or more. And they do reflect the social history of the city, so um, a, a wave of immigration to the city um, during those decades and also um, thinking about suburban living in the post war years and so on so um, it 's really uh, you know quite quite interesting to look at these different house styles there 's so many of them that we really do have to. Think about how we're going to reuse them and, uh, and update them rather than just demolish them. Um, there were over 10,000 Vancouver specials thought to have been built. And, of course, when you start looking at other common house styles from, from the 50s as well, then it's, it's a large part of, of uh, the housing stock of Vancouver that's involved in that.
0: You talk about that wave of immigration that was moving into the area uh, post-1950s and certainly in the 1960s and early 70s when you would have families that were coming into the area wanting to maximize the square footage of the property in order to have, for example, extended family living in the same house. And and yet, as effective as that was, for many people, the Vancouver special was considered a bit of a scourge on the neighbourhood
3: well they they were a very uh Straightforward house to build, and certainly they, they popped up all over the place across the city. We see them from from Dunbar right Dunbar in the in the west, right down to the, the southeast of the city. Um, I think they were built as a, a very flexible kind of housing. Um, they were pretty standard designs. They could be um, uh, permits could be sorted very quickly, and, and building could start uh, uh, right away. So um, they were popular, as you say, for um, uh, the, the flexible nature of the space, whether it was different generations. Generations of the same family living together, um, or as a rental suite downstairs and living space upstairs, and so on. Um, I think uh, probably attitudes have changed, you know, and people. Many people in Vancouver grew up in in a Vancouver special, um, so probably have a, a real fondness. Mm-hmm. Um, and others, yes, it was uh, a different aesthetic. It uh, maybe clashed with with uh, a little bit with um, things that were already there. But uh, I think they were such a, a made in Vancouver kind of solution to the particular zoning we had and, and to what was happening in the city that um, they and they can be reimagined and, and updated in ways that um, make them just another part of the fabric of the city.
0: I have a lot of fond memories personally of in southeast Vancouver, uh, being in a Vancouver special, uh, orange shag carpeting, the whole thing, right? <laughs> yes. And now what I've seen over the past many years of what so many people like our next guest, who will be on in just a couple of minutes to talk about what she has done, uh, they have turned these into really special houses. How many properties or houses are on the tour this year?
3: So there's five houses altogether on the tour and uh, within that there's three different variations of the Vancouver special and then we have two other um, house styles that would be familiar to to many people in Vancouver, one is a 1950s bungalow um, with sort of the big picture window and the you know uh, living dining area that wraps around, and the other is a split-level home also from the 1950s. So both common styles, and um, we've seen just amazing creativity by owners in um, seeing the possibilities of these houses. When they were taken on, they all needed updating. They all um, you know had uh, have had. Uh, major rethinking, but not necessarily with a massive budget. So it's it's interesting how people really put their imagination to work and have done uh, great things and really shown how it can be done.
0: Got to put you on the spot, Judith Mosley. Which of these is your favorite?
3: <laughs> well, you know, they all are unique homes and all um, have a story to them. And I think um all very worth exploring. I would say one that stands out to me as as surprising, Uh, I think Julie's home is is very interesting for that reason. I know we're going to hear more about that um, in terms of how they uh, went about uh, getting their their Vancouver special. But I think another that's really surprising on the tour was um, an owner who actually purchased back the home that she grew up in long after her parents had sold it and uh, and then renovated it to make it work for her family. So um, really was able to see the potential in it and um, make some changes to open it up and so on to be more for today's lifestyles and what we expect now, but really saw the potential in, a, in a, just a good, solid family home.
0: Before we bring Julie Lepper into the conversation, I want to ask you, uh, why is the Vancouver Heritage Foundation involved with something that, as as I mentioned earlier, many people would argue in the case of a Vancouver special, was it was nothing more than a blythe or a scar on West Coast architecture. Uh, be done with it. Let, let it go. Tear them down. Let's put up something new. That is the attitude, Judith, uh, like that or not. So I'm wondering, why is the Vancouver Heritage Foundation involved with something like this?
3: Well, as I said, I think it is very much, these houses are very much part of the architectural history of Vancouver. But I think there's also just such a strong argument from the sustainability point of view as Mm -hmm. well. So it's both that understanding the history of the city, how it's developed and what makes our neighborhoods what they are and, and different from anywhere else but also the the potential for um, really taking a more sustainable route than what is, as you say, sort of the dominant uh, approach that that we 're hearing so much about at the moment in terms of oh let 's just demolish and rebuild and really um, that that would be an unfortunate thing to see happen across the city for the the neighborhoods that we that are so familiar to people and that uh, have their own different uh, styles and and uh, character so that that's why we feel it's important.
0: Vancouver Heritage Foundation's Vancouver Special House Tour, an opportunity to explore Vancouver's familiar housing styles from the 1950s and on, is Saturday, April 16th from 1 till 5. Tickets are available through the Vancouver Heritage Foundation website, vancouverheritagefoundation.org. And uh, there's a special student rate as well. You can have a look there. Next weekend, next Sunday, one week from today, we'll have a ticket giveaway for the tour. And we'll say thank you, Judith. And after the break, if you'll hold on for just a moment, we're going to introduce you to Julie Leper. She's an interior designer by day, but in the evening and on the weekends she may be found working on her 1966 duplex Vancouver special. That's next on the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW. April 16th from 1 till 5. Tickets are now on sale for the Vancouver Heritage Foundation's Vancouver special tour. And uh, this is the eighth year and every year is more special than the other years. And it's hard to imagine that these get better. But I think what happens is you find that so many people have such a great imagination. Julie Leper, as I mentioned earlier, is an interior designer and the owner of a 1966 Vancouver Special duplex, which is included on the Vancouver Special Tour. Uh, This is a great opportunity to explore Vancouver's familiar housing styles from the 1950s and on. And again, the date for you to write on your calendar or enter into your phone is Saturday, April 16th, from one till five. Uh, welcome to the Home Discovery Show, Julie.
4: Good morning.
0: So Thank nice you to for having me. So nice to have you with us. Yours is really a very unique situation. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you got into being one of the owners of your Vancouver special duplex.
4: <laughs> well, um, quite a few years ago, when the Vancouver house, um, Vancouver special house tour began, we uh, started going to the tour, and we really realized that all the cool kids were buying Vancouver specials. <laughs> and I really wanted to be in that club. Um, also, I think because with my partners, we needed to find a home that would um, meet all of our needs. And of course, they have, you know, they're equal spaces, equally divided spaces. They have two kitchens. They're very easy to modify. They're very easy to make, pretty modern and cool. And I think we just really wanted to do that. So that's more or less how, it's, how it all began.
0: But shared ownership surely must be, I, know, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people live in Stratas, and, and that is shared ownership. Uh, yes. But th- this is a house, it's a duplex, and, and you're involved in shared ownership. And, and I, I have to ask you, how do you make it work when we hear of so many failures, great friendships, re- relationships have been destroyed <laughs> by this very concept? How have you managed to make it work?
4: Um, well, I think trust and also just a mutual appreciation for one another. Um, I mean my partners are now my chosen family. I've known them for years you know we had lots of conversations talking about you know going into the process um, and I mean ultimately at the end of the day it's just it's just about you know starting something positive listening to each other's needs and making it all work. I mean you know sure sometimes it's tough because We're not always on the same page, but at the end of the day, we always end up being on the same page. And I think that that's really sort of what is the most important.
0: Well, how easy or or difficult was it to, you know, in light of what you've just said, uh, easy or difficult to manage the renovations and, and still, you know, have a personal life and still be able to go to work and return home every evening?
4: Well, it's true. I mean, I was in design school, I was working full time, and I was renovating a house all at once. And it was, I mean, I look back at that time fondly, but it was crazy. I mean, I, and I was doing the work, a lot of the work myself because I was beginning to advise clients on renovating their ho- homes and talking to trades, and I, I'd never tiled a floor myself. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, I was, I remember like wiping off my drafting table with my schoolwork with like drywall dust and just like, you know, thinking this is absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, if I was to do it again, I'd do it again over <laughs>
0: Is that right? Again. Well, oh, yeah. Would you do it pretty much the same way or, or had you learned some valuable lessons along the way? I
4: have learned some valuable lessons, yes, yes.
0: Well, I want to ask you, in that regard, were there any surprises that, that caught you totally off guard in terms of the renovations? A lot of people go into it and they think, well, this is pretty straightforward, but usually it's anything but.
4: Well, we all watch the television shows where, you know, overnight spaces get transformed. That doesn't happen. Um, It takes time. It takes a lot of planning. And I think the biggest surprise is that renovating costs money. So, you know, you really, you really have to, you really have to be thoughtful. And if you really want it nice, you have to use the proper materials. You have to plan the space out really well. And, um, and, and, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, things cost money. Um, so, I mean, I think that's probably the most surprise. I mean, of course, there's surprises behind the walls um, that you don't, you know, always anticipate for. Um, but, you know, those sort of things you, you just you, you fix and you move on.
0: What do you love most about this house, this Vancouver special, now that you're settled in and the renovations are done?
4: Uh, I think... I think it's a very well laid out space. It's only 900 square feet, but it's three bedrooms. So um, it, it feels larger than it really is. And I think it's, it's just comfortable. I mean, when I have friends and family over, we hang out and it's all you know very open and um, it's, a, it's a great space to entertain. And I think that's, that's what I love the most about
0: it. Any advice for anyone who might be considering a, a Vancouver special or a similar vintage home for a similar like project?
4: Do it because these these homes are great. They're often very well built. They're a great home for uh, two couples to renovate together. Um, they are they're very easy to modify. I mean um, they. Can be modernized. They can be transitional. They can be traditional. I mean, really, like it's kind of like a blank slate. You can do you can do really amazing things with them. Um, so I would just I I love Vancouver specials. I would suggest them to anybody.
0: Now, now that you're an interior designer, do you feel like there's a little extra pressure on you now?
4: <laughs> yeah, there's always pressure on me. Yeah, I mean, people are always. Uh, I mean, I don't get a lot of dinner invites because people say, oh, uh, I don't want you to see my house, yeah. which is ridiculous.
0: I, I don't get any either. and It's nothing to do with anything other than the fact <laughs> I, I just can't make friends. All right, <laughs> so you're uh, an interior designer with Smithley and Muir Interior Design yes, in Vancouver.
4: My own firm, yes.
0: Julie Lepper is our guest at uh, the Vancouver Special House Tour, of which hers is one on the, the stops. A chance for you to explore Vancouver's familiar housing styles from the 1950s. Saturday, April 16th, uh, from 1 until 5, go to the Vancouver Heritage uh, Foundation's website and pick up some tickets next weekend, next Sunday. One week from today, we'll give a a pair of tickets away to the tour. And with that, Julie Lepper, uh, congratulations on your success. And thanks for sharing your story with us this morning.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Good luck. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back on the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW. Ian Power back with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. One quick one that I wanted to get in, Steve, before we leave today, uh, an email from Bradley. I was wondering if you guys could help. After painting, I wanted to add a bead of silicone to the trim boards to improve the appearance, but it seems like no matter what I do, I can't get it right. It's either too much or not enough, and... I'm usually just left with a mess.
1: Could you tell me, is there a certain type of silicone that might work better than others? If it's if it's a silicone as as we're going to call it for, for water uh water dissipation or water removal, that's that's got actual silicone in it that should smell like acetic acid when you're when you're opening up the tube. That's not really paintable unless you go over it with an oil based paint. If you're looking to put something on before painting, like baseboards or, or interior or even exterior stuff, you're looking for something that has acrylic in it that says paintable on there some silicones will say they're paintable but paintable with what and that is a, an, an alkyd based paint or an acrylic uh cover stain uh, that would have to go over the top of it so you really got to find out what it is your what's your end result going to be i can see why somebody would be
0: confused there's so many you go to the the silicone aisle and there's tube after tube after tube after yes. tube yes assuming you've picked the right product is there an angle that you want
1: to approach it at it's it's about you know 30 degrees somewhere around there and and how i find it works well is to uh, draw back on not on itself but draw away from so in other words go from where there is some sealant to where there is not sealant and a wet rag really helps as well or spray it with a very light mist it just up to glide the finger over top of
0: it well yeah i was going to ask you about that you see a lot of people that they they dip their finger in some water and then, yes. then run it across.
1: Right. And, and, and it's really hard to do that when it's outside, for example, because it's drying on you. So a nice wet finger really, kind of, it really helps.
0: I, and I always thought that that was a reason. The reason that contractors did that was they wanted to leave some kind of DNA print in the house just in case something went sideways and the contractor needed to be sued. Oh, well, then that's, that's why we use the saliva instead of the wet water. <laughs> Amila Bamji has been our technical producer, and hasn't she done a fine job as always? For Steve Seaborn, Little Contractor, my name is Ian Power. Join us again next weekend for the Home Discovery Show, and stay with us for Vancouver Consumer. That's next on News Talk 980 CKNW.